Jesus, all right. <laughs> there he is. Whew, I thought he got lost for a second. And um, anyway, what I wanted to tell you is that a lot of historians agree that Jesus was an actual person in history. So 2,000 years ago, most historians are pretty confident that Jesus walked and talked through uh, the ancient land of Israel, which, yeah. So, however, a lot of historians are divided around some of the claims, some of the things that he did, particularly his claim that he was the divine son of God. And so, for so a lot of them would agree that, yes, he was a person, they're not sure about whether he was the son of God, but all historians would agree that, regardless of that, Jesus was a master teacher. He was a great great storyteller, and he would, he would teach people truth that just blew their minds. And so that's essentially what he did. He was a traveling rabbi for three years. He was a Jewish teacher, uh, and he taught universal truths about God, about life, and what was, was really, really important. And when Jesus was teaching these ideas and insights, he, he used memorable phrases which would just capture the attention of people, and some of these phrases you might be quite familiar with yourself. So, for example, when Jesus was teaching on on judgment, he said, "Let him who is without sin cast the first stone." Kind of sticks in your memory, right? Or when he was talking about priorities, he said, "What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul?" Or when he was talking about um, the lifestyle of his followers, of what it meant to be a Christian, he said to the Christians, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so a lot of these phrases were really kind of memorable. Jesus used them to capture the attention of his listeners. And, and a lot of these phrases have been embedded within Western society and culture for the last 2,000 years. But there's this there's one phrase that Jesus uses which just I find really curious. Like, I'm fascinated by it because I'm, I'm not even sure that Jesus knew exactly what he was saying when he said it. So the phrase comes in, in some of the last teachings that Jesus gave his followers. And, and according to the historical record, Jesus was falsely accused and, and brutally executed. And then after his death on the cross, a miracle happened. Jesus came back to life. So this was confirmed by a number of post-resurrection appearances to his followers and particularly large groups of people. And then Jesus spent the next 40 days teaching and training his disciples. And when his work on earth was finished, he gave his followers a mission. And this is what he said to them. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, the phrase I want to zoom, on, zoom in on is the ends of the earth. Because Jesus' followers, his listeners, would have been familiar with everything else in that mission. But it was the ends of the earth, that phrase, the ends of the earth, that was really the odd one out for them. So previously, Jesus had told that he would send um, a helper for his followers, and this helper would be called the Holy Spirit. And his followers knew what it meant to be a witness. They knew, that they knew what it meant to testify to someone. And they were in the city of Jerusalem when this happened, and they'd also, for the last three years, spent time traveling throughout Judea and throughout Samaria, across the region, which, interestingly enough, is, is around about the size of central Otago. But it's this phrase, the ends of the earth, which would have been 
brand new territory for them. I mean, this was a bigger mission than Jesus' followers could ever get their heads around because it's likely that the first followers had not been beyond the borders of ancient Israel, just where that highlighted yellow circle is. So their known world for them was literally the Mediterranean. And at the peak of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire covered around about 5 million square kilometres. You can see it stretching up there in the north from north of England through modern-day Spain, France, Italy, Germany, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Egypt. Right? It's a big, big span, right around kind of the, the edge of the Mediterranean. And it's estimated that there was about 70 million people uh, in the Roman Empire, around about 20% of the world's population. Which means that there's plenty more people in the world, a good 80 more percent. There was people beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire. And Jesus' followers, they were likely aware of these far-off lands, you know, lands in the African continent or, or across to Asia, but they were far away. They were foreign and, and beyond the everyday experiences of most people. So if that's the case, why would Jesus use that phrase, the ends of the earth? I mean, it's, it's unfamiliar for his followers. It's, it's distant. It's, it's a practical impossibility for his followers to get there, right? Maybe, maybe he liked the poetic nature of the phrase. You know, he liked the alliteration and the rhyme in there, you know, ends of the earth. Maybe he was trying to encourage his followers to get out a bit more, get a passport, travel abroad, Obviously, it was pre-COVID, so you could do that sort of stuff. Or maybe Jesus genuinely thought that the good news of his gospel message would spread to the ends of the earth. That somehow the Christian faith would make its way around the world to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't want to give away a big secret, but the fact that you are here in a Christian church this morning is probably a hint that the message of Jesus did make it to the ends of the earth. And so I just really want to help you discover in the next few minutes how that happened. I want to unpack how Jesus' followers shared his message to the ends of the earth, and, and more importantly, what effect that had on the people who heard it. Now, I know that I look like a pastor Whatever that looks like. But I'm also a historian. So I have a couple of degrees in history and I teach uh, Christian history in a Bible college each year. So I'm going to use that historical background to highlight how Jesus' followers got to the ends of the earth. So what you've got to do is settle in, relax. We're going to cover around 2,000 years of history, probably within the next three to four hours. Um, <laughs> So if you could just kind of make yourself comfy. No, of course not. I'm not going to do that for you. I have an animated map, right? And um, it's going to show the spread of Christianity over 2,000 years in about 90 seconds. And I might make a little bit of commentary maybe. So anyway, this is what it looks like. Christianity is the light color up the top there. And you can see it starts in Israel and then spreads across the Roman Empire. Turkey, Greece... Uh, Italy, France, Spain, then south into Egypt uh, and Ethiopia, but also east across to Syria, Iran, Iraq, and into Asia. Now, this is stuff that people don't not hugely familiar with. So it moves on pretty well, and then the rise of Islam, that green color pops up, and really kind of pushes back 
some of the gains that Christianity made, particularly in Asia and around the 8th, 9th century. But you'll see there's a bit of a, a revival, I suppose, even during the medieval period kind of pushes through, but then a, a huge regression, a dramatic pushback under the Mongol Empire and, and a bunch of other uh, significant movements. That's not the end, though. In the 16th, 17th century, the age of discovery, many European explorers spread Christianity through South and North America, around the coast of Africa, uh, Polynesia and Melanesia, down here in the bottom corner, to New Zealand. So after 2,000 years, we can safely say that Jesus' followers and the mission that he gave them, Christianity is represented on every continent, and the Christian message made it to the ends of the earth, to New Zealand, right? And that message of Jesus was carried by a group of people known as missionaries. Now, you also need to know that they were not perfect people. They were as human as you and I, okay? And they brought more than the good news of Jesus, Many of them brought their culture and their assumptions, and they kind of overlay that on the indigenous peoples that they met. And, and in some situations, not all, but in some situations, there was abuse and there was oppression that was not in line with Jesus' teachings. And we're actually going to peel back some of those layers, uh, like I said, um, over the coming weeks in our new series, Better and Worse. But just park that for now, because for the most part, in general... The missionaries who came to New Zealand, the encounters they had with the indigenous Māori people of Aotearoa were generally positive. And actually what's unique about New Zealand is that our nation has a definitive time and a place when the message of Jesus was first shared on these shores. So you might be familiar with this man, uh, his name's Samuel Marsden, and, and he was one of the first Christian missionaries to New Zealand. And so he preached the first Christian sermon on the 25th of December, Christmas Day, in the year 1814 in the Bay of Islands. And uh, you might be familiar with that scene. We celebrated the bicentenary 200 years of that um, six or seven years ago. But before he came to New Zealand in 1814, Samuel Marsden for 20 years had been the chaplain of the convict colony in Sydney, Australia. Pretty rough place to be a chaplain. And he was keen to bring the message of Jesus to New Zealand. So he actually held the Māori in very high regard. He believed they would be receptive to the Christian message. This is what he wrote in his diary on the 28th of September, 1814. I consider New Zealand as the great emporium of the South Sea Islands, inhabited by a numerous race of very intelligent people. And so at the invitation of several Māori chiefs, Marsden came to New Zealand in around mid-December, 1814. And he had a particular friendship with a Māori chief called Ruatara. And Ruatara actually was the guy who made the preparations for that first Christian service. So Ruatata fenced off about half an acre of land in uh, Ohai Bay in the Bay of Islands, and he built a pulpit out of an old canoe, an old waka, and some planks, and he overturned some other waka for seats for the Europeans and for the high-ranking Murray. And so on Christmas Day, 1814, around 400 people were present. 
And Marsden shared the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. And his key text was from the Bible in Luke chapter 2, which was the angel announcing the shepherds. And this is what Marsden read out. I bring you good tidings, uh, good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And so Marsden preached on that text and, and Ruatata translated so the Maori people could understand. And at the end, as a sign of respect, many of the tribes performed a haka. And so this is what Marsden wrote uh, in his diary at the end of that day. In this manner, the gospel has been introduced into New Zealand. And I fervently pray that the glory of it may never depart from its inhabitants till time shall be no more. It was really a, a really significant moment in New Zealand history. It's actually captured in that iconic Christmas carol which we sing called Te Haranui, which, which literally means the big happy or, or the great joy. And that's certainly how Marsden and the European missionaries felt. They had high hopes for the future. They believed that if the missionaries could get alongside the Māori, if they could get to know um, them as people, understand their language, appreciate their culture, respect what was happening, then they could hopefully share the good news, the message of Jesus, which would bring great joy. So a few weeks after that Christmas Day sermon, uh, Marston sailed back to his base in Australia and he left behind three missionary families to set up, set up shop. But days after Marsden left, tragedy struck. So Ruatara, the chief who had welcomed, who had supported and who had protected the birth of the gospel in the country, became sick and he died. And that was really only the start of the difficulties for the European missionaries. They were living in conditions that were isolated and exposed. They mostly stayed in, in basic huts, which had limited amenities. They were regularly short of food and supplies, and they lived in fear of attack from unfriendly, unfriendly tribes beyond their regions. But despite those difficulties, the missionaries did not give up. They introduced innovations in farming. They introduced livestock like cattle and pigs and sheep, do you know what the Māori people called sheep? Land maggots. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they kind of look a little bit like them, don't they? they established, the missionaries established, chules, uh, established schools for the Māori children, and they, and they listened and learned and managed to codify the Māori language so that they could translate the Bible into Te Reo. And so after 10 long years of hard work, of setbacks, of discouragements the missionaries had little to show for their efforts. They had set up several mission statements and they had a, a mission stations and they had a growing respect for, uh, amongst the Māori people, but not one Māori had professed belief in the Christian faith after 10 years. Until September 1825, a decade after Marsden preached that Christmas Day sermon, there was an elderly chief called Rangi who lived up the Waitangi River, and he made a confession on his deathbed. He professed belief in Tiatua, the great God, and his son, Ihu Karaiti, Jesus Christ. And this is what Rangi said when he was questioned about his faith. He said, when I think of the love of Ihu Karaiti, Jesus Christ, I ask him to wash this bad heart and to give me a new heart. When I think of heaven and of Ihu Karaiti, I am glad, because when I die, I shall leave this flesh and these bones here, and my soul will go 
to heaven. Now that confession was really inspiring for Rangi's tribe, but not many followed his lead. And it took another 10 years of struggle and strain, and after another 10 years, after 20 years since Marston preached that first sermon, the missionaries could count 50 Māori who had converted to Christianity. That was out of a population of around about 90,000. So there is 0.05 Christian Māori living in the country at that point. But in the 1830s, there was a dramatic change. For the next 20 years from there, the decade before the Treaty of Waitangi and the decade after the Treaty of Waitangi, Māori became open to the message of Jesus. There was uh, several people who were involved in this. Uh, A guy called Henry Williams and his wife, Mary Ann, and his brother, William Williams, (laughs) and his wife, Jane. And they were quite influential in in helping uh, people understand the message of Jesus. And this is how William Williams described what happened during those 20 years. He wrote this, God has poured out his Holy Spirit and has inclined great numbers of Māori to listen to the invitation given to them. So across Aotearoa, from the far north right down to Stewart Island, thousands and thousands of Māori converted to Christianity. It was a, a professor called James Balich, New Zealand historian, not a Christian. He makes a conservative estimate that in the 1850s, there was about 50,000 Māori who had converted to Christianity. That's 60% of the population. And so the Christian message really captured the hearts and minds of many Māori people. They, they could see the spiritual and the social benefits that Christianity brought. So most Māori settlements had a Christian presence. Tribes uh, built schools for their children. The literacy rates increased as Māori could read the Bible in Tereo in their own language. Churches, they built churches for worship. And some of those churches were huge. Like some of the churches could cater for up to a 1,000 people. Massive buildings. Uh, Many Māori forgave their enemies and negotiated peace treaties amongst the warring tribes. They generously shared their resources and their supplies. They released their slaves and they stopped the practice of cannibalism. It was a a transformational turnaround. Historians have called it the first great spiritual awakening for New Zealand. So in his early 70s, when he had poor health, Samuel Marsden was able to make a final visit to New Zealand. And what he saw... 23 years after his inaugural Christmas Day sermon must have really strengthened his heart. This is what he saw. Marsden was permitted to see a large body of Christians in every locality he came to, accomplishing that sure and certain work which God had appointed. The seed of the gospel was now germinating far and wide. So by 1840, when the Treaty of Waitangi was signed... The good news of Jesus was firmly established. It was taking root in this country. But what's even more fascinating about that is that the European missionaries took the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, but it was Christian Māori who took that message to other Māori. And across Aotearoa, the good news of Jesus was spread by Māori, for Māori, to Māori. 
They traversed geographical boundaries and crossed tribal divisions. They traveled by foot and by boat to share the message of Jesus. I'm only going to give you just a a quick example of three of these guys who were really pivotal. Uh, Pitipi Tamata Akuda was a a former slave, and and he took the gospel message to the Napui people in the east coast, which is between Tauranga and Gisborne in the North Island. Or Wudemu Tamihana, he was the son of a great chief who lived on the Kapiti coast, just north of Wellington. In 1842, he took the gospel message of peace to the Naitahu people living in the South Island. The the Naitahu people were the people his father had previously terrorized on war raids. And Wudemu, the son of this terrorizing chief, went to the South Island and and literally went the, the length of the South Island down the coast all the way to Stewart Island, sharing the good news of Jesus. Or well, in the Otago coast, uh, the Otago Peninsula, several Naitahu chiefs uh, became baptised. Prominent among them was Horomanu uh, Pohira. But there was also Karako and uh, another guy called Wurumu. They were instrumental in guiding their people toward the Christian faith in the Otago region. So in the year 1846, a couple of English explorers, a guy called Charles Heafy and a guy called Thomas Brunner, they made an epic expedition down the west coast of the South Island. And if you've travelled down the west coast, you may recognise some of their names. But on their first uh, journey, they discovered that almost all the Māori that they encountered were committed to the Christian faith. And what was amazing was that no European missionary had ever travelled through that region. This is how William Williams summed it up. He said, A great work has been accomplished in which the hand of God has been signally manifest. It has not been through the labor of the missionaries, for the word has been preached by native teachers. We, that's the European missionaries, have literally stood still to see the salvation of God. Crazy, eh? Now, I probably need to apologize um, for that just overwhelming history dump, but I think it's important that all of us who call New Zealand home know some of our heritage. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but I find it inspiring that those dedicated men and women, the European and the Maori, <clears throat> took the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus was right. He must have known what he was saying when he said that. That his followers were witnesses to his power. And they started in Jerusalem. And they spread throughout Judea and Samaria. And it took them 18 centuries before they made it to the ends of the earth. But they did. And those European and those Māori missionaries shared the message of Jesus across Aotearoa. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus' followers still have that same message, still have that same mission today. You know, a lot has happened in our nation in the last 200 years, and Christianity has gone through, through many highs and many lows over the decades. But that original mission that those pioneering missionaries had now rests with us. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe the circumstances that we're living in are not so different to New Zealand 200 years ago. Because just like then, there are divisions in our society. There is injustice and inequality. There is 
immorality and, and selfish indulgence. And just, just like then, people now are searching for truth. They are seeking purpose. They are looking what or looking who they can put their trust in. And so into the messy mix of our times, Jesus offers healing and hope. Faith in Ehu Karaiti brings peace and joy. It brings grace and truth. Jesus offers forgiveness and reconciliation. He brings the power to transform our lives, to bring meaning and purpose. And maybe, maybe this pandemic could be a catalyst for another spiritual awakening across our nation. You know, our family, our friends, our workmates, our neighbours, they need to see and hear the message of Jesus. But that is only going to happen if you and I play our part. People are only going to see and hear the message of Jesus if we are his witnesses. And we're not witnessing in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but here at the ends of the earth, in Alexandria, in Clyde, in Roxburgh, in Ranfurly, across central Otago. That's what I love about being part of this church, that at ABC we are all about living and loving like Jesus. And so this morning I want you to realize not only the history and the heritage that we have, but also the opportunity to continue that legacy, to advance that mission, to play our part, to witness to Jesus here at the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for those pioneering missionaries, the European and the Maori, who followed your command, who took Jesus' message to the ends of the earth. And as we reflect on that here this morning, we humbly ask that we would play our part, that we'd do our bit, that we would carry on your message. We've just sung about the name of Jesus having the power to break every chain. And we know that you bring healing and hope. You bring reconciliation and restoration. And so we ask that through your Holy Spirit, he'll be at work within us to equip us, to empower us, to share your grace and your truth, to live and love like Jesus every day. Amen.